everyone else, I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to John chapter 16. John chapter 16 is where we will be this morning, looking at verses 16 through 24, Lord willing. And if you're able, I'd like to ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word out of honor for the Word of God. We'll read verse 16 through 24. Jesus is speaking here. He says, A little while, and you will see me no longer. And a little while again, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is it, is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me and again a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be made full. You may be seated. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask now that you would guide our study of your word, that your servant would speak clearly and speak nothing that is not in your word, that all that we would hear as your people this morning is you speaking to us, that we would hear exactly what you intended, especially as we look at the words of our Lord Jesus Christ speaking to his disciples. May we not misunderstand, but may we come away with clarity and knowledge that we might live differently because we have been shaped by your word as those filled with your spirit. Bless this time and use it for our good and your glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, we are beginning to near the end of the Upper Room Discourse. Remember, the cross is tomorrow, and what has taken us several weeks to get through took Jesus a few minutes to just speak out loud. We're really just one high priestly prayer away from the beginnings of Christ's sufferings and his captivity, and then to his crucifixion. And at the end of his teaching, Jesus wanted his disciples to be prepared. We've been seeing that over and over again, particularly in chapters 14, 15, and 16 now. They need to be able to carry what's coming next, and so they need handles to carry what is coming next. So this is what Jesus is going to do for them at the end of this chapter before he prays for them. Chapter 17 is just his prayer for them. Before he gets to that prayer, he's trying to give them handles to carry the weight of what it is that's going to happen in just a few hours. So at first in our text, as we read earlier, you saw earlier that he speaks cryptically to draw them in. And then he's going to speak very clearly to explain to them. He's just been telling them all about the world's hatred for them. We've seen that in chapter 15 and the beginning of chapter 16. Their hearts are troubled. Their minds are distracted. And he's going to use a puzzling statement to kind of snap them out of it and then to bring them in intentionally 
And, and we'll see here again that Jesus, he never sugarcoats the bad, nor does he downplay the good. He's going to give equal grounds to both, as we saw, sorrow and joy. As we read, the disciples' sorrow is imminent and unavoidable, and it's going to be very, very real. But it is also going to be very temporary. And as Jesus is making that abundantly clear, the joy of Christ will overtake it fully and forever. And this is the concept that's always been a part of the Christian pilgrimage, the, the, the journey that we walk from here to Zion's Hill, the Old Testament language for getting to heaven, the place of God, the mountain of God. That kind of language of sorrow coming first before joy, it, it gets captivated for me in my favorite book besides the Bible, which is Pilgrim's Progress. And in the second book, Christiana is now going on the journey. The first book was Christian, and he has to leave his family. His wife and his kids do not believe in Christ, and, and they, they don't follow. The second book is all of them following, his four sons and his wife. They now are believers, and they go on the journey. And a visitor comes to Christiana's house to talk to her before she sets out on the journey with her sons. And this is that, an excerpt from that portion of, of Pilgrim's Progress. Let me read it to you. Now, I'm going to read it with the these and the thous, and I think you know what thee and thou means. I mean, King James English is difficult, but we know that thee means you. So we got it, okay? I'm, I'm going to read this to us like this. So the visitor proceeded and said, Christiana, here also is a letter for thee, which I have brought from thy husband's king, meaning your husband's God. This is a letter from God, meaning the Bible. So she took it and opened it, but it smelt after the manner of the best perfume. Also, it was written in letters of gold. The content of the letters were these. The king would have her to do as Christian, her husband. For that was the way to come to his city, God's city, and to dwell in his presence with joy forever. At this, the good woman was overcome. So she cried out to her visitor, Sir, will you carry me and my children with you that we may also go and worship the king? Then said the visitor, Christiana, the bitter is before the sweet. Thou must go through troubles as did he that went before thee into this celestial city. Like it's said at the beginning of her journey, the bitter is before the sweet. And then when she's at a crucial part towards the end of her journey, and she's try, so, uh, an interloper is trying to negotiate her off the trail, this could be an easier way. She says, no, the bitter must come before the sweet. And all of this is happening here in the Upper Room Discourse, night before the cross. Time is crawling towards the cross and Jesus is letting them know it's going to get real bitter real quick but that bitterness is going to be temporary and providentially God has timed this message for today I certainly did not plan it out like this I don't think more than a week in advance when it comes to sermon prep but this is the week before we celebrate the resurrection of Christ and the bitter always must come before the sweet and sorrow will be turned to joy that Christ in a moment that looks most defeating and most sorrowful, we look back as victory. The victory of God for the good of his glory and the good of his people. So our text this morning, we're going to break down into four headings. The first one's going to be an intentional confusion in verses 16 through 19. And the next, next three are all about joy. Joy that replaces sorrow, verses 20 and 21. And joy that cannot be taken in verse 22. And joy that is full verses 23 and 24. Now, Jesus is about to do something confusing, as we read, and you even heard me reading it. I stumbled over it. 
Now, in, when I was in college, I liked to challenge myself by taking the easiest classes I could find. And so I found this class called Sports Manage, or so, so, no, 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 easy, easier than that, the Sociology of Sports. And I was thinking, great, this is just going to be Babe Ruth played for the Yankees, and Joe Fraser was a good boxer, and that'll be it. I had a friend took it the semester before, and he said, hey, the first day is going to be kind of weird, but just hang with it after that. First day, the professor comes down. It's, his name is Dr. Reuben A. Buford May. <laughs> Dr. Reuben A. Buford May, about six foot seven, African-American guy, skinny, got his PhD from the University of Chicago, brilliant. And he, the first class period, just starts yelling. And he makes you think that he is some rageous, outrageously immoral, racist, angry professor. And I knew from my friend taking the semester before, this is not real. But it feels really, really real. And so then he, gets, he, does, he did that to get everybody to drop the class. And then whoever stayed, that's who he really wanted to deal with. And so then you stayed after that, but he would still talk in this really cryptic way. And he had his TA at the back named Sean. And he would just yell at Sean throughout the class. It was a big stadium seating class. Sean, they don't get it. They don't get it today. Sean, where are they at? We had a seven today. We had no idea what he was talking about with Sean for weeks and months. And come to find out, he was doing all of these things. He was a sociology nut. And he loved to see how people respond to things. And he found out that if he spoke really cryptically and really kind of confusing, everybody stays engaged. And a, sports, a class like sports sociology, which really was Babe Ruth played for the Yankees and then Joe Fraser was a boxer and Muhammad Ali knocked him out. I mean, that was really what we were talking about. He got us all engaged and we were all there every class. He spoke cryptically and it drew us all in. And then he ended up being a really cool professor. He played basketball with us. And in fact, I slept through his final and he called me and woke me up and I made it there, made it 86. Sweat all over the test because I biked all the way there. But Jesus is about to do something similar in drawing these disciples in. Because you go into the college classroom in the first semester, the first semester and you're totally a deadhead, and he snapped us out of it. Jesus is in a similar type place. He's been telling them, he's been speaking as a monologue for a while, and he's going to snap them in. He says in verse 16, a little while, and you will see me no longer, and again a little while, and you will see me. So some of the disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me? And because I'm going to the Father? So they were saying, what does he mean by saying a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. This is not a smooth transition. This gets you a bad grade in sermon evaluation class in seminary. Not a good segue. It's all on purpose. He's jumped, he's jumped from the persecution they're going to deal with to the Holy Spirit that they're going to be filled with when he's gone to now a riddle. It's supposed to be jarring. You're supposed to be shaken and going, wait, 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 wait. What's going on? He's snapping the disciples back in to the moment. Get out of thinking about what's going to come ahead, the, the hatred of the world, the persecution that's inevitable, and think about, I'm going to bring you back to here and, and right now. And they speak again. Do you see that in verse 17? They're, they're mumbling to each other. Remember, they're still sitting around the table, the Last Supper table, still reclined around there. So they're obviously mumbling to each other in a way kind of under their breath, and Jesus can understand. We'll get to it in a minute. But they're extremely confused. They haven't spoken. The last one who spoke was the non-traitor Judas back in chapter 14, verse 22. It's been 52 verses of monologue. Jesus just speaking. 
So now they're back engaged thinking about these things, and they are completely clueless. They don't understand what's going on. And that, that says it. John records it so plainly in verse 18. What does he mean? We do not know what he's talking about. Very plain for us to understand. They have no idea. That's obviously intentional. When we think about Jesus, what did John call him in John 1, 1? The word, the word, the logos, the concept, the idea, the truth, the written down. And didn't Jesus then go on to say that he creates all things, or John go on to say that Jesus has created all things? So Jesus creates humans, and he creates human speech. He himself is the word. Do you think he struggles with communication? Absolutely not. This is all on purpose. Speaking cryptically, on he wants them puzzled to get them thinking specifically about something. What's their specific point of confusion? What does he mean by, verse 18, a little while? That's what he wants them to be thinking about, the specific point of confusion. They do not grasp the imminent moment of the crucifixion. They, they just don't get it. He's been talking about it. He's been building it up. They're having this big last supper that they think is just Passover. They don't grasp the three days in the grave. He's got to die. They don't grasp that. They don't get the resurrection either, that he's going to be risen again. They don't understand that. So this, a little while, Jesus is talking about the imminence of what's coming. So in verse 19, Jesus knew they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Here were the good shepherd. Again, he knows they want to ask. And he's going to save them the embarrassment. Is this what you guys are talking about? Is, is this bothering you, some of you guys? I mean, just go ahead and, and address that. His tactics was successful. They're engaged in the present. They're not thinking about the hatred of the world, the persecution that's inevitable. Now they're thinking about what Jesus just said that was extremely puzzling. They're not concerned about themselves. Now they're thinking about a little while longer. But the good shepherd does not leave the sheep in the dark. He wants their eyes on him he, he wants them to walk in the truth. So he does something that puzzles them, confuses them, makes them a little bit anxious and unsettled on purpose so that their eyes stay fixated on him. Because when you tell them the world is going to hate you, it's easy to think about yourself. You're going to be gone, and I'm going to be here, and I'm just going to be hated for this. And I don't understand this concept of the Holy Spirit indwelling me. This is brand new stuff. So... I'm thinking about me, and Jesus is now, now I want you to think about me. Stop thinking about yourself and think about me. When I was training our dog, Dodger, now he's named Dodger. These people get this confused. He's named Dodger after Roger the Dodger Stallback, not after the L.A. Dodgers, just to put it out there. You don't need to stumble into that hole. But when he was little, I had a lot of time because I was a teacher in the summer times, and Anna was working, and we didn't have any kids, so I was going to train this dog. And... We would go out into big fields or we'd go into wooded areas and he was little. And I wanted him to walk off leash with us and, and be fine with that. I didn't want to have to just be, you know, ch chasing him all over the place. So when he was real little away from me than I wanted him to, and he was getting to where he's kind of interested following some smells or he saw a squirrel or a, a car was interesting or something, then I would just go and hide behind a tree. And then he would freak out and he'd come running down the path looking for me because he couldn't find me. 
But what I wanted him to know was no matter what you are interested in, no matter what has your intention, it's not more important than me. You need to know where I am all the time. That's going to be better for you, but you can't tell a dog that. You just need to example it, that the, your worst fear needs to be you don't know where I am, and you don't know what's going on, and you don't know where we're going. So I would get and jump and hide behind a tree and not say anything. And then he would realize that he has no idea where he is and no idea where I am when he's a real little puppy and come running looking for me. And he'd run past the tree and then turn around and see me and then come right to me like, oh, you didn't leave me. Thank you so much. And ever since then, he knows you be where I am. And if he get on something else, then I would just show him, look, I'm going this way and I will leave you behind. See, that's the threat that no mom can make in the store. <laughs> I will leave you. They know you have to come and get me. I know you have to come find me. The dog doesn't know that. He may leave me forever. Jesus is getting these disciples to snap their heads back and look at me. Focus on Christ. What is it that he wants them to understand? He wants them to understand his death and resurrection. So the first, a little while, you will see me no longer. That's his death. A little while, it's coming. And again, a little while, you will see me. That's the resurrection. They need to grasp that he will die, but also rise again. This is still an unfathomable concept to them. How could the prophet like Moses, how could the son of David, how could the son of man, the son of God, how could he die? How, how, how could people actually kill him? How could that happen? What mere person could, why would he need to do this? And he's showing them this interconnectedness of all of the elements of the cross and the crucifixion that'll spill out. And he's already been doing it by talking about the Holy Spirit and talking about his ascension, meaning his, his permanent physical exit for, or semi-permanent physical exit from the planet. But this death, burial, resurrection, and then ascension, and then outpouring of the Holy Spirit, these elements of the crucifixion, he's been talking about and laying them out, and they're all connected. They're all interconnected. And we can get in trouble and even danger sometimes when we want to itemize them out too much. Let me just show you real quick how these all connect so that it makes sense what Jesus is going to say further. See, without Jesus' death and burial, we have no atonement for sin. Hebrews 9.22 says as much. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That's what sin costs. Sin costs somebody's life. Yours or something else's. Somebody has to die in order for sin to be atoned for. And in the old covenant system, it was animals. It was sheep, it was goats, bulls, and doves. But Hebrews 10.4 says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So that was never really going to work. So then... Who's shedding of blood in order for our sins to be forgiven? How is that going to happen? Hebrews 10, 12 through 14. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins as opposed to the unending sacrifices of the old covenant, he sat down at the right hand of God, symbolizing his, the, the finished work, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So without the death and the burial, we have no atonement for sin, no payment. But without the resurrection from the dead, we don't have any justification. Romans 4.25, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. 
The resurrection is not a negligible part of the, of the whole thing for sin. We can't say, well, whether or not he actually physically raised, that doesn't actually matter. It's just, did he raise up in our hearts? And did he fill our hearts and our, our thinking? No, we have to have a real resurrection. Otherwise, Hebrews 4.25 is not true. We are not justified before God. He has not declared us righteous and thus acceptable in his presence. 1 Corinthians 15 is a massive chapter on the resurrection. And verse 14 says, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If Christ has not been raised, then everything that we're doing today is worthless. And everything that you conduct your life by as a Christian is worthless, is nonsense, says Paul. Same chapter, verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, then you're still in your sins. Sin didn't go away. Even unbelievers know that sin and evil exists, but without Christ's resurrection, we're all hopeless. We're still going to go to hell without Christ, having raised from the dead. But at the end of that chapter, he says in verse 20 and following, he says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits, meaning the first to do this, of those who have fallen asleep, meaning the rest of us are going to be raised. For as by a man came death, meaning Adam, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead, meaning Christ. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So the burial, the death, the burial, the resurrection, but without the ascension, we don't have an acceptance of the sacrifice that Jesus made, and we don't have the outpouring of the Spirit. John, John 16, 7, we've already read before. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. If he doesn't ascend the right hand of the Father, then there's no acceptance of that sacrifice, and the Spirit can't be poured out upon the believers. So Jesus, walking his disciples through this upper room discourse, is showing these are all connected. We can all see it retroactively looking back. They're all still trying to process it and connect and put it all together. Jesus said, remember, though, disciples, the Spirit's going to guide you into all truth and to all understanding. He's going to recall all things to your mind. He said, remember, I have more to say to you now, but I, don't, I can't tell it to you now. There is more to come, but the Spirit's going to take care of that. The Spirit's going to walk you into those things. So to some extent, all of this is embedded in Jesus' puzzling statement, a little while and you will not see me, and again in a little while you will see me. All put together. But for now, what the disciples need is they need to be equipped for what's next, which comes in verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. The disciples will indeed be distraught by the crucifixion. The death of Christ will be sorrowful. It was sorrowful. His physical pain was real. The judicial injustice was real, and they watched it. The blood soaking the wood was real. The wrath of God superseding all physical pain that anything could ever be afflicted upon a human body. The full wrath of God for all of the sins of the world go on Christ was real. That was real suffering that he really went through. It was right that they wept and lamented at that. The fact that we needed that level of Savior shows that we have that level of evil. 
and level of sin. And they did weep. Luke 23, 27. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him as he's carrying the cross to Golgotha. In John 20, verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped in to look to the tomb. Her weeping is about to turn into joy, but not yet. She still is weeping. Mark 16, 10. Mary, again, she went and told those who had been with Jesus, him, as they mourned and wept. They're still weeping when she's coming back with the good news. I mean, you think about the cross. His mom is there. The women that followed him were there. The disciples were there. It's mourning. And even though it's only a little while, it's little while can, can be a long while. You know, Sproul defined this little while. He says, often used in Scripture to describe the interval of pain and sorrow and grief that we're called to endure in this life. That little while is, is, a, is a biblical term that has many applications. And it doesn't seem that short when you're in real pain. Fifteen minutes is a little while when you're in Six Flags and you're 12 years old. Fifteen minutes is not a little while when you're any age and you're standing on burning coals. A little while, these three days, this is a, it's a long time. Sorrowful. But the world's going to be elated by the crucifixion. The world's going to be glad. Why? They're just following their leader. And Satan is so self-deluded, he thinks that it really works. Now you think, nobody could be that stupid. Nobody could think that, that, that this one act is going to uh, actually win me the victory. But that's what sin does to you. It makes you stupid. I mean, that, remember when he's a sinless creature as an angel, he thinks, I'm better than God. I can be God. That's what sin makes us all believe. Did God really say, you'll be like God if you eat this? Satan is self-deluded and so is the world. They rejoice at the crucifixion. The Pharisees thought they'd really won. We finally got rid of that guy. We finally have got rid of this annoying hindrance to our work, this constant arguing that we're having to deal with, people being confused about what we're trying to say, and they believed that God was pleased with them. They rejoiced. Pilate, he thought his hands were actually clean, and he was actually done with this nuisance because he's just a despot from uh, a, a, in a sense, just a manager from Rome. And what, you, what do you want as a manager? Nothing to ever go wrong. And so people are mad and angry. He's like, man, I got to get up and actually deal with this. Well, oh, my hands are clean and now I don't have to deal with it. Lo and behold, Acts chapter 4 names him as a guilty party. And the Apostles' Creed, since the beginning of the New Covenant Church, has named him as a guilty party. The death of Christ appeared to be a clear victory for three days. It really looked like that. For three days, Satan and his underlings will rejoice. For three days, the disciples will weep. But, what does it say? Your sorrow will turn into joy. See, Jesus promises beforehand an expiration date to their sorrow. Jesus, as much as it truly is sorrow, it is truly temporary. And he says something there that we got to pick on pick up on he didn't just say and your sorrow will go away and just kind of be neutralized and you'll just have a vacuum of feeling no it's going to be replaced 
with joy. It's one thing to have your pain, your physical pain, just kind of go away. It's another thing to feel really good physically. That's what Jesus is saying. It's going to go away. It's going to transform into joy. Just as Jesus brings us from darkness to light, from death to life, he brings from sorrow to joy. That's what he's doing for his followers. They have no reason to sorrow. They have none. That, that time is over. It lasted three days. The sorrow that we would feel for a, an executed Savior is three days long. That's it. And this it remains. We do have bitterness and sorrow here on the earth, but it's a hopeful, not a hopeless sorrow because we know how it ends. This is Jesus' illustration in verse 21. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Isn't this just an excellent illustration? Jesus is the master teacher making it come home to mere mortals. He's bringing it down to their level, or as we say in East Texas, you're putting the cookies on the lower shelf. The kids can eat them. You're making it understandable. We, we get it. New life brings about pain. It only comes from pain. How do we get new human life? Somebody has to suffer. Does the possessor of that new life suffer? No. Somebody else suffers for her. Well, what did the possessor of the new life, that infant, do to merit that substitutionary suffering? Nothing. That baby may be born, and we don't even know his name, her name, or their gender. Nothing done, good or bad, to like, okay, it's going to be worth it now that I know who this baby is. I'll go ahead and deliver the baby. Unmerited. Nothing. New life is always a gift, no matter where it comes from. That's why we call it the gift of life. And some smothering mothers say, I gave you the gift of life. They never say the paycheck of life. Well, you earned it, so I have to give you life. No, it's a gift. It's struggling to have new life. But it's a struggle that's not even worth remembering. Isn't that God's unique design in the, the fairer of the human species? When we had Mallory, I was like, man, this was insane. This is definitely a one and done. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Like this... This was a nightmare. She was breaking my hand. There was nothing I could do. She was mad at me. And here we are. And then a few months down the road, she's like, let's do that again. That was just, just kind of easy. I was like, wow, I remember it differently than you do. <laughs> <laughs> but she, she's forgotten it. That's, that's the mother, right? Jesus is saying right here, she's forgetting it. No longer remembers the anguish. You don't walk around looking at that baby going, gosh, that hurts so bad. I mean, you tell the stories when it's funny and they're being bad or you want to embarrass them at their rehearsal dinner, but you, you don't live in that. You don't remember the anguish anymore. We've seen before, but Romans 8, 18 bears repeating. Paul says, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory. It's not even worth speaking them in the same sentence. The sorrow, it doesn't matter. Christ suffered once. And he was sorrowful once. We suffer and have sorrow only in this life. Never again. 
disciples, they only suffered in that particular way for only three days, and that's it. Jesus says it's going to go away, just like a new mother holding her baby. They won't think twice about their former sorrow. That's what the kind of joy that Jesus brings. And that joy is also unassailable, verse 22. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. The promise of the bodily resurrection we see there, I will see you again. Not a hologram, not, not, not just a ghost, not a spirit kind of phantasm, a real, recognizable, bodily Jesus. That's who will resurrect. And they will see him and it's the promise that joy, you will see me again and your hearts will rejoice because you see me. Upon seeing the resurrected Jesus, they're going to be full of joy, hearts flooded with joy. Peter dives off the boat to swim in. Mary runs from the tomb back after she sees him in the garden. Joy. Luke 24 describes it like this, 36 through 43. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. This is his appearance miraculously through the walls right here in the room. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet. That is, I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling. He said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. So that's why we think we can eat good in heaven because Jesus ate after he resurrected. It's a side note. But they were joyful and marveling in John 20, 20. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad. The NASB says rejoiced. The NIV says overjoyed when they saw the Lord. This is what he said. It would be true. And in seeing him at his ascension, they're also full of great joy. Luke 24, 51. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven and they worshiped him and returned to israel with great joy and were continuing in the temple blessing god he promised them joy on thursday night they had no joy friday no joy saturday and then joy came in the morning on sunday and then they have joy all the way those 40 days till he ascends and then when he ascends what do they run back to jerusalem with joy unassailable joy he says at the end of the verse, no one will take it from you. See, just like Jesus gives peace that's not like earthly peace in John 14, 27. He neither gives earthly joy. This joy can't be stolen. This is not joy that circumstances or people can take from us. It can't be taken. Christians in the worst of circumstances can rejoice. There are Christians in Ukraine and in Russia right now rejoicing. Christians in India under deep persecution from radical government, rejoicing. And Myanmar, also known as Burma, they're a crazy government, rejoicing. Paul and Silas can sing in prison. Martyrs can preach over the flames as they're being burned at the stake. This is joy that cannot be taken from outside. But what happens when we don't experience Christian joy? 
Because we don't sometimes. What happened? What, where is the, what is that? We gave it away. We walked away from it. It can't be taken, but it can be abandoned. Just like any good gift that we have from the Father. If we don't have it, it's because we walked away from it. Joy is always available to the believer. And we can't ever say, like, oh, man, my boss is just stealing my joy. Or, like, oh, man, this circumstance in my life is just taking my joy away. It's not. You're giving it away. Because this is a joy that cannot be stolen. That's the kind that Christ gives. Every other human on the planet, not in Christ, still in Adam, they can say, my circumstances have stolen my joy. That person has stolen my joy. They can say that. And it'd be, and it'd be the truth because their happiness, their, their understanding of place in the world and hope is completely circumstantially driven and understood. They can't have anything else but their circumstances. We, on the other hand, can have, have a, a superseding joy. So when it's absent, we pray. Give me that joy back. Help me get back into it. Help me to understand things more clearly and to walk in more maturity. And God gives generously with a greater grace. James 1 and James 4 says. And it's ultimately final joy of heaven that we have. Don't we know? Remember, we, all of these elements of the resurrection connect, even including the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And if he's poured out in us because Jesus resurrected and ascended, then what does that then mean? He can't be stolen out of me. And so I am forever destined for heaven, and that can't be stolen from me. That can't be taken from me. The spirit cannot be taken from the elect. Heaven cannot be taken from the elect. Therefore, ultimate and final joy is ultimately assured to all believers. That's the fullness of joy that Jesus is building to in the last two verses. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Your joy may be full. In that day, he says, you will ask nothing. Meaning, when after the death and resurrection, th their questions are all answered. We get it. This is what had to happen. We see you. We understand this. They'll see him face to face, resurrected body. That, those, those questions that they had, well, where, where are you going? What are you doing? What do you mean you got to die? They get it all now. And when the Spirit comes at Pentecost, he's going to guide them into all truth. So the questions are all answered. We're not going to have any unanswered questions. Things are about to get a lot less confusing for the disciples. But then comes this double promise of provision, repeated in back-to-back -back verses. That should make us make note. It's not a mistake. It's not a joke. It's not a miswrite. So we pray for help in dealing in the tension between joy and sorrow. And we pray for help to walk in joy amidst unjoyful circumstances. And we're instructed to ask in Christ's name. Do you know that Jesus says in verse 24, until now you've asked for nothing in my name? Isn't that true? They have not prayed in Jesus' name yet, right? They haven't been instructed to that. What is Jesus' prayer instruction to them? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. They don't know and understand yet the mediatorial role of Christ. But he says now, and that now spanning like four days, because when he's going he's to die and pay for their sins and become the earned mediator that Hebrews 7, 5 talks about. Consequently, he, Jesus, is able to save to the othermost, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. 
You ask in Christ's name. Not that it's kind of a, a magical incantation that if we, if we stick it on the end of a prayer, then we're definitely going to get what we want. But rather, if your request can write Christ, then God is more than eager and willing to grant that. If Christ's name can go on it, in my name, the intercessor, the mediator, the Father is pleased to give it. Things that contribute to our joy in Christ. And that's what we spend our lives, part of our sanctification, understanding. Well, what is it then that I can pray and really put Christ's name actually on? What are those things? Well, and that's not what I usually pray for. Well, why am I not usually praying for things that Christ can put his name on? That I can honestly pray in, in Christ's name, not just as kind of a, uh, a superstitious tag along. No, we put Christ's name on these things, and prayer becomes then a means of growth. Prayer is for us. It's not waking up God and making him aware of what we need. He knows what we need. Prayer is for us. Elongated prayer is for us. That's what this whole building thing has been for me. I'm up and down and all over the place and doubting and believing and, and stretching and all of these things. And it's such a wonderful process of sanctification and humbling. I've got to come and plead to you. I cannot make two people make a decision. I can't do it. But how badly I want it so much for our church. Can't do it. So I got to come. Like the widow in the book of Luke. Just constantly never letting that guy go. Like Jacob in Genesis 35. I will not let you go until you bless me. And that's not him being a brat. That's him realizing who am I tangling with and what am I running from his brother Esau and figuring out all of these things. I need a blessing and I'm not, I'm not turning you loose, God. I'm not letting you go until it happens. Because if it doesn't, I'm dead. If I turn you loose, I'm dead. We pray like that. And that joy, he says, will be full. Ask and you will receive. The promise of complete joy. That Jesus doesn't give us partial joy. He doesn't give us the joy starter pack. He doesn't give us joy seeds, and if you water them, and if you make sure you take care of them, and you do everything right, maybe they'll grow some of them. No, this is full joy. That's what he gives. And we need merely to walk in it. This joy is networked together, as we've seen in chapter 14 and 15, with abiding in Christ and obeying his word, pursuing that faithfulness. And John 15, 11 says, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. It's coupled with the ability to pray. Now we pray expectantly that we abide in Christ, we obey his word, and we pray expectantly as real, actual children of God. And our joy becomes truly full joy. The bitter must come before the sweet. That's what Jesus is telling his disciples, and that's what we have to know and embrace. We want to reverse that or eliminate bitter altogether. But the bitter must come before the sweet. And Peter, who was there for this, he wrote something very similar in his first letter. 1 Peter 1, verse 7. He says, So that the tested more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. 
Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter heard Jesus talk about sorrow turning into joy. He heard Jesus talk about the hatred of the world, but the inevitability of heaven because of the down payment of the spirit in us. And he said, yeah, we're going to be tested by fire right now. That, that sorrow is going to be real. It's going to happen. But the belief in him means that we're given joy that's inexpressible, he says. And it results in an outcome, eternal salvation. And that's the great paradox of the cross, is it not? That we can look back at, at something that caused real sorrow and real weeping in the moment, and now it's our greatest cause of joy. I mean, that, that's, the, that's the peculiarity of the whole thing, that what was supposed to be a defeat is actually a victory, and we look back on it with fondness. But what are we looking back on? We're looking back on a, on a slaughter. If you were at the cross, you wouldn't be, yes, this is so awesome. Go do it. You would be weeping with everybody else. You'd be feeling the pain of Jesus saying, Father, why have you forsaken me? But yet we can look back on it and see the joy that it really was full sorrow and full joy. And the joy replaces the sorrow. We celebrate now what they feared more than anything then. That an instrument of execution becomes by way of Christ new life. A sorrowful moment has become history's greatest joy for God's people. And so though you walk through the veil of sorrows now, may you know and stand in the perfect joy of Christ until he comes again. <clears throat> Father in heaven, what joy. We, I am so guilty of passing the buck and saying that my joy has been stolen by something else. I am so thankful for brothers and sisters who come around and, and we interact and and that we can see quantifiably my circumstances are better than theirs. And they have more joy than I can shake a stick at. So I thank you. Thank you for the church. Because when we think about this, we, we can get wrapped up in a, a perpetual cycle of joylessness, of having everything and believing we have nothing. And Lord, we live inundated by glowing rectangles that just talk about nothing but the absence of joy in the world and we know that that's true it is absent of joy but keep us father from fixating on that let us keep our eyes upon christ let us hear the puzzling statement that jesus uttered to the 12 or the 11 in the upper room and let us be snapped out of it let us be snapped out of thinking about ourselves and looking to Christ, and then noticing all along the way that we're just being carried along by this helium of joy, lifted up. May we know that and experience that. May we encourage one another in that. Because we, we desperately need it. Lord, we, we, we thank you for the brothers and sisters around the world who, and throughout history who have lived in circumstances far worse than us. Thank you for their example. We know that Hebrews 13 instructs us to be grateful for those who have been examined us and the great cloud of witnesses 
that surrounds us in the hall of faith, all of Hebrews 11 and 12 and 13. And thank you for that. Thank you, because we need that encouragement because we're so weak and we're so frail, so easily distracted and so quickly self-absorbed. But may we walk in this joy. May we radiate this joy, even though our eyes may have tears in them, even though there are real sorrows and real, there really is true bitter that we experience now. May we never forget the hope that we have Father, we know that we, we, we confess together that we are, are so easily uh, locked into mimicking a secular mind that believes that all that exists is here and now and that our only hope is here and now and we live to make here and now better because that's all there is. And that is the mind of hopelessness. That is the mind of godlessness. We have a greater grace, a greater hope, a joy that cannot be stolen. So may we, in turn, be a witness to those who do not have that hope, who do not have that joy, that they may see us undeterred by common sufferings that we all face, that our, our voices aren't risen in complaint about the lack of good that we have, but they rise up in joy for the gratitude for what we do have, that we have all things that we could say even to our unbelieving friends who could watch us be stripped of everything and have nothing, and still we will praise you, just as Job modeled for us, that you have given and you take away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We thank you. Thank you for your son. We thank you for the upper room. We thank you for the time that our older brother in the faith, John, took to record under the inspiration of the Spirit these great words. May we be encouraged by them and instructed by them. And may we champion the truth of them in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our circles of influence. Thank you for the joy that cannot be stolen. Thank you for the joy that is complete and full. This we pray in your Son's name.